sport has given me everything. I love sport. I love being an athlete and I would love to win. But ultimately, I, I want to live and I want to enjoy my life because we, we don't own tomorrow and we can't get yesterday back. We only have this present moment. Well, hello, folks, and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. Now, this podcast is about exploring the experiences, concepts, and insights from the world of performance. And in each episode, I'll be speaking to people who have been there and done it, researched aspects of performance in real depth, or have supported others to aspire. And it's my hope that you'll find some interesting ideas here to develop your philosophies, work, and maybe how you live your life. And to that last point, this episode's interview is a deep one. It's a full existential exploration of what is important, how and what we pursue, and the focus on what really matters in our lives. I had the truly humbling, moving and inspirational experience of speaking to Dave Smith, who I won't overly introduce now, as I want Dave to tell his utterly remarkable story of sporting endeavour, fighting cancer and choosing to live life. All right. Well, massive welcome to the podcast, Dave. Uh, how are you? Wow, there, there's a loaded question. <laughs> That's a big question, isn't it? It's yeah, a yeah. big question. We're uh, going to get into it. No, yeah. Um, thank you for the for the offer. I've been a, a keen follower of your work for many years now, from your own days, and then obviously re- reading your book and stuff. And I remember um, the last time I seen you, actually, was at Bisham Abbey when I'd not long come out of my fourth third fourth surgery i lose track um and i was doing my rehabilitation and we were chatting about uh how to best stimulate the central nervous system with a spinal cord injury to get the most out of the rehabilitation and um it was yeah so it was really interesting so uh and i learned a lot from that which has taken me forward so the question of how you are today i am like everyone i guess i have good days and i have bad days um the good days are are, are fantastic and then the bad days are yeah they're pretty challenging when you're when you're dealing with a, a a rare tumor in your spinal cord that won't go away and a spinal cord injury and the pressures of sport and life in general so um yeah it's uh i guess the psychology of the brain is a roller coaster but today i'm i'm on good form today good well i mean i i reached out to you because um i mean, I'm a, if there's one person when you pop up on social media and so on one person that i'll I won't scroll past it's you to see how kind of things are going and and you went off social media for a bit didn't you and, I, and uh, there was probably a reason behind that and then I, I saw that this little clip and trailer about you telling your story and I thought okay well maybe now is an appropriate time to to share that is that something you're conscious of now is a time to share your story yeah, I think you know it was really interesting. I remember when I when I first tried to do that it was in 2010, and it was the very first time I'd been diagnosed. And I remember sitting in the the hospital room in Oxford, about to walk down to surgery, and I felt so insecure about having these socks on and this hospital cow. And I was like, oh, I hope no one sees me at this. And then I woke up, obviously after a, a few surgeries and lost all my muscle. I think I went from 105 kilos to 70 one I think it was and 
I was a real mess. And I remember the time at that point I was reading a blog from a, an athlete, actually. She was an Australian athlete, a biathlon girl who had been hit by a truck on a, when she was out training on her bike. And uh, Janie Shepherd, I think her name was, and she'd spent a month in a coma and then came out of the coma and she was paralyzed, but she went on to fly a plane and do all these amazing things. And I remember reading her blog and thinking, wow, I'm getting a huge amount of strength from this lady's adversity, but not so much her adversity, but the way she had dealt with it. And it was a big thing for me at that point because I thought, well, maybe if, if I write a blog, then it could actually help somebody, but then no one's going to read it. You know, no one's going to be interested in this. Uh, and I remember taking a very, a picture of myself in my hospital pants. And it was the first test of myself to, to post this, to get over all the insecurities, everything, and just post it on Facebook and say, Hey, I'm going to blog the next month. And I was so overwhelmed by the, the response of people. And what was really interesting is that it was a massive help to me. But it was also a massive help to other people. So it was this, this amazing power of story, power of human connection. And I thought, wow, this actually, this is actually really making a difference to people. And I was getting emails from people in all over the world that had read it and think, you know, you're really helping me. And I said, like, wow, actually, by you emailing me, you're really helping me. So it almost created, it gave me a bit of a purpose every morning. I knew I had to wake up, do my rehabilitation because I was almost accountable to all these people with tumors and cancers or just going through hard times in life. And I thought, wow, actually, this okay, this has made me accountable to somebody um, and given me a purpose. And I think we all search in life for this this purpose. And that went great for uh, a long time. And I blogged it and, the, you know, the, the BBC covered a lot of my stories and, and it was great. Uh, but the problem is, is with that, sometimes you do attract the wrong type of people. Uh, and I did attract some trolls and, and some nasty people. And in 2017, uh, I was, yeah, I was, I was, I was trolled really badly and I decided just to, to leave social media. It was too, it was too stressful. So I, I stepped away from it all. I became a bit of a recluse. And then I actually realized actually, no, you know, this story was helping a lot of people. And there's one in two people, I think, now that are diagnosed with, with a cancer, with a cancer or a tumor. And I thought, wow, you know, that's a lot of people. Um, and by 2050, that could be half the world. And I thought, actually, if my, and I really struggled with my story because I, I didn't want to put it out there and say, hey, look at me, look at me. I'm doing all these amazing things. And so I started to struggle with it psychologically because I started to ask the question, well, who am I putting this out there for? Because the drive of this whole social media thing is about likes and about this, and how many followers do you, how many likes you get? And it created this huge mental health problem that we see in society now. And I thought, oh, I don't want to be part of that. I don't want, Internally, I started having this voice saying, well, I hope I'm not putting this out for me. I want to be putting it out to show people what you can do. And I was very wary of that because I, I, you see all these people going on all these reality shows and all that. And you think, well, why, what, what's the why behind it? And I thought, as long as the why behind it fits with my values, then I should for sure put trailers out, put blogs out. And then I, I started writing a column in the Herald newspaper and it was getting a lot of good response. And then the trailer came along uh, with a possible Netflix documentary. And I started to think, okay, I'm not doing this for me. Uh, it's not for my ego or anything. It is generally to try and and make people see how important health is, how important your physical health, your mental health, and actually how important it is just to get the most out of life. And I think that's something we miss. And I seen that last year, this year when I was in radiation. I'd go down to the cancer ward to have radiation 
and everybody was happy. Then I would come up onto the street and everyone was unhappy. <laughs> oh, what a contrast. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking, wow, what, what's driving this? Why, what's the why behind this? What, you know, this is, this shouldn't be, it shouldn't be that everyone in the cancer ward. And I, I realized it's because for people to change, sometimes it takes a massive smash, a massive crash. And sometimes that can be a diagnosis and you go away and you look at your life and you reset your values and what's important to you. And I think it's very easy in society now that we've become human doings rather than human beings. And it's do, 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 do all the time. And then before you wake up and you're 60 and you spent the first 60 years of your life making money and you spend the next 20 odd, 30 years of your life using all that money to, to pay for your medical bills. And for me, I thought, well, if I can share my story in a, an appropriate way just to make people see that, that actually, okay, you need to find that balance and then you need to, to be more being and doing as well. And it doesn't mean not going and trying for your goals. It just means to be a little bit more self-aware and, and bring gratitude into your life and actually live with, with a, with a proper purpose that doesn't fit with this whole society of likes and posting and boosting your ego. It's actually you're doing it for the right reasons. And from a personal point of view, when I see some of the, your material, it does give me a bit of a slap around the face when I'm, I'm, moaning about this that or the other so thank you for that but i suppose the reality is that if you put something out on social media if you produce a documentary or whatever you produce some material some people are going to connect with it and some people it's not right for them or they actually want to get some attention by disliking it and you've probably sounds like you've been a recipient of somebody who is is trying to actively drag you down at at the expense and cost potentially there for certainly for a brief moment where you just go i'm not this is too much but how did you kind of reboot that and and think actually you know what i am gonna i am gonna share my material and and, and gonna cope with those troll yeah I, it, for me it, it was a really interesting journey because it all tied in with the except because i had just come out of hospital after being paralyzed i was paralyzed completely down one side of my body this was a whole new world to me uh the world changes very quickly when you're when you're paralyzed uh, you know you go from being a fully abled guy you're completely independent and you're just trucking through life and you feel invincible and then one day you wake up and you can't move and you've got people washing you in the bed you've got people helping you to the toilet people brushing your teeth for you people feeding you and your independence goes and as soon as your independence goes that that puts you in a completely different place mentally and you do go through you know the, the Kruberos stages of grief and you end up in a very dark place and I ended up in that place and at the same time you know I had these trolls and these people attacking me and it's like the bully in the playground there's always going to be the bully but unfortunately now with with internet that bully can hide behind the computer and target you from from afar and you can't even see your enemy so it's almost, it's like a cancer. You can't see it, but it's having a huge effect on you. And you know, people say, don't, don't read, don't read it. And that's the easy thing to say, don't read it. But it's like saying, don't think of the pink elephant in the room. You automatically think, you know, we're wired psychologically to, to almost focus in on the negative. So you, you, you're attracted to it almost. And it just got to the point for me where I, struggled massively with the injury and coming to accept the the disabilities the 
you know, when you see, when you see me, you, you might see the paralysis, but you don't actually see the internal effects of a spinal cord injury, you know, bladder, bowel problems. You know, there's, I've been standing in Tesco and I've, I've done not just a number one, but a number two <laughs> in, in Tesco because you lose, when you have a high up spinal cord injury, you lose all control of everything from the injury site down. So this causes huge amounts of anxiety, huge, even just leaving the building becomes a massively stressful process because where most people do things on an autonomic level, everything for me is cognitively done. So even when I wake up in the morning, go for a shower, have a wash, that can take an hour because I'm, it's all cognitive. I've got to think about walking. I've got to think about tying my shoes. Everything is so tiring that having a spinal cord injury is a full-time job. So you've got to learn to accept that. And that can take a long time. So I was learning to accept that. The trolls got right in there within that first few months. So I was in this like washing machine of just emotions and psychological stress, PTSD from the surgeries, from the from the hospital environment, everything I'd seen in hospital. Uh, and eventually it just all got too much and I, and I broke. And I remember lying in the shower floor thinking to myself, I'm probably quite happy to take my life now. And at that point, it was a big alarm bell. And I think my self-awareness, I sort of said to myself, okay, it was identifying it and thinking, okay, this is not right. And I knew I had an amazing network of people around me. And I thought, okay, I need to reach out to these people because everyone thinks I'm super strong. And everyone sees the posts and the perception of the post is that Dave Smith's super strong. And actually, I'm just a human being like everyone else. And I was in a real dark place and I thought, okay, I need to reach out. And I knew who I could reach out to. And I, and I, and I did that and, and it worked and I managed to sort of pull myself out of where I was. Wow. Okay. So I mean, we're, we're right into it now yeah. and I, I'm not quite sure what to ask you next. I think that, <laughs> so what I'm hearing is that actually the troll potentially wasn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily the, the, the person that caused you to question whether you want to continue living but was an accumulation of so that that person who wants to grab your attention um and and potentially present you in in a bad light that's an external input that just got too much on top of your, your conditions and your situation um but it sounds as though at that that nadir that that pit of the 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 experience it's other people as well external people that or your thoughts of those people that helped you lift up as well yeah absolutely i i remember reading something at a point where if you have a bottom up top down outside in approach to whatever's going on so i knew i was depressed i knew i was in a dark place and i thought okay let, let's look at this and think okay from the bottom up am i getting am i exercising at that point no um, am I eating the best foods? Probably not. My sleep wasn't great. So there was all these things from the bottom up that I wasn't doing. So I knew that they were going to have a massive effect on hormones, on neurotransmitters, on, on the spinal cord. Outside in, I had the troll, but I had blocked my strong network of social friends. So the only outside in thing was coming from the negative, the, the negativity of, of that. And then top down, I'd lost my self-belief I'd lost my self-esteem. I'd lost my drive, my passion, my purpose. So I knew all three areas had to be addressed. 
Um, so I went back to cycling. I went back to British cycling, started training again. I started eating better foods. I started being more disciplined around my sleep hygiene. Right away, huge effect. Much auto, Almost automatically, I was being able to deal okay. with the stress a lot better. So in terms of dealing with the situation, being able to not perhaps give as much of a shit about some of the, yeah. the negativity. Yeah. But in terms of energy or positive mindset, what what, what was yeah, that? It was accumulation of everything. I think what was it was so interesting. So when I got better sleep, I I knew I had the capabilities to deal with it. I just didn't have the capacity to deal with it because I'd run myself empty. So as soon as I started getting better sleep, then I'd wake up in the morning and I would be refreshed, recovered, to able to deal with any negativity. Then when I started to eat the better foods, the whole hormonal input of the foods, I started to just feel better. I, I probably had a much more control over my fight or flight. My cortisol levels were probably much more in control. Uh, all the inflammatory markers were more controlled. So all that helped. Then when I went to cycling, I started to get this outside network of support again from coaches, from friends. I dug out all my mentors. I went to spend time with them. So they gave me a, a real energy, a much more positive outlook. And then when I combined all my studies and I started to understand about the sort of, I guess, the top down, what my thoughts and feelings were and what I was having that inner dialogue, I started to change that. And it, and it did, it wasn't a magic pill. It wasn't just going to go away. It took a lot of work and a lot of self-discipline around any change in life takes takes self-discipline. But if you want it enough, then you're you're going to do it. And I sort of said, you know what? If I've managed to survive all these tumors, all these spinal strokes, all these diagnoses, then for sure I can deal with I can deal with somebody like this. And where I think initially I was reacting emotionally, and I was in a complete mess because I guess my my limbic system was just running it was running control like i had, there was no rational thought i'd lost complete control when i started to get better sleep better food exercise get that network back in then it allowed me to take control and just quieten down the volume in my mind and then i was in a much more rational place to make rational decisions and and that was that was ultimately how i got through that period of trying to accept the paralysis the negativity from people and then i realized actually okay you know it's it's yeah, actually, it really helps me share my story, not in an ego-based way, but it, it gives me a purpose. So walk us through your story. And, and I'm conscious that any given sentence you're about to say could be a feature film anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and that, or, or could be a, a, even a Supporting Champions podcast. So share us your story. Talk us, talk us through it. Yeah, so um, I guess it really starts 1978. So we'll, we'll dip back a while. I was born with a condition called talipaces in my feet, which is known as clubfoot, where your feet are sort of fused uh, facing backwards. And I had them repeatedly re uh, broken, reset into special plaster casts and, and special boots. So very much like the, the Forrest Gump movie. Uh, that's kind of what I was going through at an early age. At the same time, I was all, there's a high chance I was also born with a a genetic mutation in the cells in the spinal cord in the neck at a sort of C3 to C5 level which would go on to grow a spinal cord tumour and the the crazy thing about it all I guess if you're looking at a baby at that stage you would never think that a career in sport is is where you're going to go um, I think all the, the trauma I, I went through at that early age probably built 
a very huge tank of resilience that has got me through the rest of my life. So I started off learning to walk in these special plaster casts and boots. I grew up in the Highlands of Scotland and sport was just a natural thing. You spend all your time outdoors. So as I, as I grew up, the feet became less of an issue. I managed to deal with everyday life and my, I had a, a really high energy and my parents were like, you know what, like you're full of mischief. <laughs> you're not going to sit and read a book, but we're just going to throw you into every single sport that's in the village. So I, I started playing shinty, which is a, a, a Scottish sport. Uh, it's almost like hurling, sort of a mix of hurling and hockey and ice hockey on grass. I went skiing, water skiing. Uh, like it, 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 literally, if there was a sport in the village, I did it. And, and did you have any dysfunction at that point? Were you able to still do it? And yeah, fully? yeah, I could do it. Uh, the, the the biggest problem I had is I couldn't bend my right knee because of my foot. The, the left foot healed really well, but the right foot didn't heal very well. So I couldn't bend my right knee. But as a young kid, I wasn't aware of this. And I remember that the first time I really became aware of it is that the first sport I really properly became obsessed about was karate. And I remember going on a junior British team. We went to Japan and I couldn't bend that right knee. And the Japanese senses, obviously, they, they don't understand. They're like, you need to bend your knee in position. And they kept continuously hitting me with a wooden stick. Uh, called a boken because I couldn't bend the knee and I was like well, at what point did I turn around and say you know look I, I can't bend this knee so uh, I went through it for three weeks of absolute torture um, and I came home from that trip and I was thinking I said to my mom I can't bend my why can't I bend my knee so she sort of explained to me about my feet and I was like oh well, we need to probably get this looked into so that by that time I was like 16 so I was starting to realize look I'm struggling here. There's, there's something not right with, with this foot. So I started to go and see all these chiropractors and all these different people. But back in those days, you know, sports science and stuff didn't really, it existed, but it didn't really exist. So no one really knew. Um, so I was just kind of like panned off with some insoles in my shoes and off I went. Um, I went to, I think it was, like, yeah, three world karate championships. Karate wasn't an Olympic sport. I sort of fell in love with Olympics growing up in Aviemore. I was surrounded by a lot of skiers, Alan Baxter, Noel Baxter, Sean Lamier, Mike Dixon, who went, I think he did six Olympics, Mike did in the biathlon. So I had all these people around me that I'm sure you've probably come across and possibly yeah, worked with a yeah, lot of them. Yeah, worked with those guys, <laughs> yeah, yeah the, and the Baxters and, and Dixon, yeah. Yeah, so, so you know, so phenomenal athletes. I mean, Alan, Alan's, Alan is an incredible athlete. So I sort of grew up looking at these guys and thinking, oh, wow, I want to, want to be part of that and I remember they went to the the Nagano games in 98 and they came back and I remember seeing you know Noel came around the house and he had the you know the jacket and everything on I was like wow you know that that's nice I would yeah I would like one of them and I thought wow that's great and at that point I thought well how do I how do I get one of them um what sport can I do and I and I thought you know I I, I can run and there was an athletics track not far from where I was working at the point uh on a building site so I, and the guy I was working with, he was a coach and he said, you know, shoot, you should come along one night and try, try athletics. And I was like, I, you know, absolutely. And came along and it was like a December night and Ian Mackey was there. And uh, so he was like the first guy I seen when I stepped on the track was Ian Mackey run past me. And I was like, wow, that, that, I didn't need any more inspiration. That, that was it. I was, that, that guy became my instant inspiration. And I thought, great. And I looked at the coach and I said, like, you know, I want to be a hundred meter runner. And he looked at me and kind of probably looked at him and I, you know, okay, let, let's see if you, you, you look like a 400 meter runner. Yeah. Um, so he got me some spikes 
there was snow on the track, but there was a couple of lanes cleared off and I ran round and I, I ran 51, 51, 52 seconds on a stopwatch. Very, I've never even been in an athletes track in my life. And then I remember lying down and throwing up in the, in the disabled toilet, uh, but I loved it. It was just like, I was like, yeah, okay, this is, I found this, this is, I'm, I'm going to fall in love with this. And I, I threw a hundred percent, it became an obsession. And um, little did I know that the foot was causing huge problems, but that spinal cord tumor was also causing huge problems. And as hard, the harder I trained, the more my body kicked back. And I think for me, sports always, it's, I know we complex it and the body's a complex thing, the mind's a complex thing, but ultimately it is kind of simple. If you put the hard work in, you expect some form of result out, especially back in 98, it wasn't, as I say, we didn't have all this scientific support. So it was like, if, if you run hard, train hard, you should run a fast time at the weekend. And, and that wasn't really happening. And then I was in ex all excruciating pain. I was having headaches and my body was just, there was all sorts of weird stuff going on inside my body. And um, eventually the, the navicular bone of my foot snapped straight down the middle at the Scottish Championships in, in the 200 metres. And I went through a real extensive rehabilitation. And during that rehabilitation, there was a lady I was working with, Sandy uh, Lyle, a physio in Edinburgh University. And we found out that the foot didn't have any dorsiflexion. And at that point, I didn't really know what that meant. And I didn't realise that basically meant I was never going to be able to run off a bend in athletics. It just was never going to happen because the foot was technically deformed. Now, fast forward to all these years to Paralympic sport, if I came around now with that, someone would have spotted me and said, hey, you classify for Paralympic sport and I could have had a whole different career. Yeah. Um, but at that point, you know, no one, everyone I was working with didn't know anything about Paralympic sport. So I went unnoticed and I didn't even know anything about Paralympic sport at that point because I'd been so focused on the Olympics, I just assumed that the Paralympics was for people in wheelchairs or that stigma in my mind is what existed. I didn't know any different. Um, the only people I'd ever seen was amputations or, or wheelchair guys. I hadn't seen anyone with like with a foot deformity. So I didn't, I wasn't aware of it. And that could be victim of where I was living. If I'd maybe lived down in England, someone would have probably spotted me, but, but they didn't. And my path was laid out. So I, I attempted to run this, the 400 meters. I, I won an East of Scotland title. I ran 49 seconds, but it was never going to go any further because of the, the foot and ultimately the tumor, which was in my spinal cord, was crushing all the nerves to my whole body. So I couldn't produce any power. So, so you've got a, a navicular problem. There's, there's a foot, there's a foot restriction there. There's a, an anatomical restriction, but were you suggesting there that, that ultimately 400 meter training is hard? Mind you, I've, I've got a hint already. Shinty, karate, 400 meters. These aren't soft sports. And, but w was it effect of the 400 meter training is hard and there's a, there's almost like an overtraining aspect where you're going to be immunosuppressed. Your body's going to be hurting physiologically as well as physically. And, and was that a limit to how much you could engage with that sport as well? I, well, I think one of the, the key things was is that I probably I wasn't sleeping, and this was something that we didn't find out until my time in Rowan. That every time I I lay down with the tumor, it was cutting off the nerve supply to the body. So I was going through lots of convulsions, mini convulsions in my sleep. And as a as a baby, I'd actually been misdiagnosed with epilepsy and, and rushed into hospital three or four times uh, because they thought I had epilepsy, but it's hard to say if the tumour was 
causing huge problems in the area. But the, the very first major symptom I had was when I was 17. So when I was running, the tumor was definitely there. So I, I guess that I was, I was probably overtraining uh, on the 400 meters. I think for me, it's always been very easy to do too much training and not, and then too little. So I was for sure over, over training, but I think what I was not, I was, I, I was under recovering. I think recovery strategies back then were not, were not really understood. I had a coach with a stopwatch who just said, run harder, run more, but there was no, there was no real recovery strategy. And I look back to things and think, oh man, I used to work as a bouncer on a door and then to three in the morning and then go and train at like 11 in the morning and stuff. So it, yeah, there was, it was not conducive to high performance sports. So there was a huge physiological deficit in my, in my recovery. And then obviously the tumor would be, it was living off my body. So as, as hard as I was trying to train and recover, the tumor was taking blood. It was had its own blood supply, its own nutritional supply. It was feeding off my body. That was driving my immune system even further down. Then the 400 meter training was driving the immune system even further down. So I was, I, yeah, I was, I basically was not in a, a good place. Were you aware of the tumor at the time? I had no idea. Um, so I had all these symptoms that didn't make any sense. And I remember going to doctors and saying, you know, all these things are going on inside my body. I don't really understand. And literally every doctor I seen basically said, oh, you're doing too much sport. You're doing too much sport. Uh, you're training too much. And I'd go away from the meeting thinking, well, maybe I am. I don't know. Possibly, I'm not sure. Um, but I would just go and train more again uh, and then get more ill and more tired and more fatigued. Then I thought, well, being fatigued is maybe part of being a 400 meter athlete. You know, it's, it's hard work. You're going to sleep and all the endurance athletes I knew just slept all the time, slept and trained. So I thought, this is just life as an athlete. So I don't, I don't know a life without pain. Um, and I think there's a real relationship there if you delve into the psychology of the enjoyment of the suffering of the sport and the tumor. I don't think, there's no coincidence I've been an athlete. Being an athlete has kept me alive through the tumor, but also the tumor has kept me driving in sport. So there's a real relationship, I think, between both of them. And I don't think it's a coincidence that I fell into sport. But you, if you were unaware of the tumor at that point, okay, you've, you sounds like you've come to, You've come to recognize it and live with it, uh, accommodate it, l allow it to drive you and so on. Uh, before that, though, you were pretty driven because you didn't just go from athletics. You, is the next sport bobsleigh? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah. I've been down at bobsleigh. Yeah. That's not for the lighthearted. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and you were a brake man as well. So yeah. you were right at the back getting waved around. What was, yeah. Why did you go for that? Yeah, you know, it, it was really weird. I think that... The, the sports have, I've never really chose any of the sports. The sports have almost chose me, um, which is a really, you know, it's, I guess it's a bit of a deep spiritual path to look at it in that way that, um, you know, I didn't go, I didn't see bobsledding thing. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to become a bobsledder. It was almost at athletics. I was struggling. And then I started to watch TV and there were snippets of bobsleigh. And then I started to, people were speaking about it and I thought, ah, okay, you know, actually, you know, that kind of looks quite, quite a cool thing to do. And I remember just phoning up the British Boxing Association and saying, "Hey, you know, like I'm a 400 meter runner. I'm not, I'm not massively fast, but you know, I'm, I'm a pretty strong guy." And they were like, "Yeah, you know, come down, test, try out." And at that point, the team wasn't—it wasn't a strong team at that point. They'd gone through the transition. They, you know, 
finished uh they had the glory days of the 90s um so I managed to get a spot on the team as, as a break man. I, I wouldn't say I was at any any good. Um, I would say I was definitely a mediocre sort of just one of the one of the cannon fodder guys. But I had a great time. I met some good friends. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I got to compete for Great Britain. So and, and it was great time. But I was always ill, and the tumor was causing more problems. Uh, I mean, I, I don't. I can't imagine going down the track, you know, five, six Gs, 90 mile an hour, what that was doing to the spinal cord. Um, must have been, must have been brutal. But, but I loved it. And, but the time was very short lived in the sport. I, I didn't do it for very long. I only did a handful of races. And then I, I was very lucky to get a job with the British ski team as a coach. And that's when I realized at that point that I was actually eligible for Paralympic sport because I still had all the injuries. I still had all the problems with my, my foot, my neck, my back. And at that point, I started working with a physiotherapist who was a swimming classifier. And she said, look, you, she goes, you know, you classify for Paralympic sport. And I remember going away and thinking, wow, what does that mean? And I looked it up and I was like, wow, look at this. There's this whole world that I just hadn't been aware of for all these years. And I thought, God, I could have been doing this. I could have been doing this for the last 10 years. Um, and gone to Sydney, Athens, all these these games, and think, wow, this looks amazing. So I thought, you know what? I, and I think that's life's all about perception, and we're always faced with challenges and obstacles, and it's, it's how we perceive them. And if we if we see the the challenge in it rather than the threat, there's opportunity to be had. So I, I seen this as just you know, okay, this is this is a great opportunity. So I, I phoned uh, the British Paralympic Association. I ended up in, in Loughborough doing a testing day with Nick Diaper. And we went through a series of tests. And then the very last test was to jump on a rowing machine and do a three-minute test. And I'd never been in an erg in my life. Pulled pulled the hell out of it, threw up. And it took me all the way back to that very first 400-meter session in Petrivi. And I hadn't had that feeling for like 10 years. And, I, and automatically, I was like, wow, I love this. This is amazing. What is it that you loved about that? Besides spending time with Nick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe Nick made you throw up. But yeah. what um, what was it about wanting to, or f- that feeling of throwing up? Um, is it the fact that my body has been taxed to its limit? I've, I've given my full effort, mind and body. And there's the result that, that my body is clearly rejecting food as an indicator of me committing that much what was it about it so sport for me was never about winning medals never has been it's always been an eternal thing of how far can i go mentally and physically as life goes i i didn't have a, a silver spoon upbringing i had a pretty hard tough upbringing it's definitely it wasn't as bad as some people but it was you know it was like i had yeah i got a few hits around the head from my old man and stuff like that so I I had a tough upbringing and it was a a very hostile house in my escape my coping mechanism was to go and run and I would just go and run until I couldn't run anymore I'd go in the punch bag and punch the punch bag for three hours a night when I was like 12 year old 13 year old so it wasn't so much that I was talent spoiled and I went through this talent thing to go to Olympics initially sport for me was a it was an escape from the world 
Um, so I threw myself into it. So that became, the relationship became more of a, like an obsession that I needed to do. It's not that I wanted to do it. I almost needed to do it. And um, that's been a really unhealthy relationship for a long time. And I think that it just became about how far can I go? How 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 far can Dave Smith go? How far can I push? And I, I began to love that feeling because it obviously released a lot of endorphins. It was an escape from the world. It was that point where I guess I was in flow, but I was in my own little world, but I didn't really know the the drivers, what was putting me there. So getting on that row machine and pulling as hard as I could for three minutes wasn't really to try and win a medal or prove anyone. It was just to see how, okay, how, how far can I go? How strong am I? And, you know, I was told a lot when I was a youngster that, um, you know, you'll never achieve anything. You're a waste of space. You're useless. So, so I was getting a lot of negative things from teachers, from, from different people around me. And it was like, you know what? I'm going to prove you wrong. So it was like this internal driver. So it was almost taking a negative thing using it as a positive, but there was definitely a possibly an unhealthy relationship going on there. Um, but it drove me and actually it's driven me through all the tumors and all the sports. So actually it's, I've made it work for me rather than against me. And so I loved it. So as soon as I pulled that rowing machine, I thought, this is, this is amazing. And then I was invited by Tom Dyson down to Caversham, uh, your probably one of mm. your homes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I walked into an environment I'd never seen before, you know, from a little village in Aviemore. And I'd walked into probably one of Britain's most successful Olympic sports and was like, wow, this is seriously impressive. So what year was this? That was 2009, the end of 2009. Yeah, two, yeah, 2009, start of 2009. And um, so, yeah, Started 2009, came down, and then within, I, I basically packed my car in Aviemore and moved down to Caversham, and I was living down there 18 sessions a week, learning to scull, learning to roll, and also learning to fit into a fully supported program, which I'd never be, I'd done everything on my own. I, I used to sit and read muscle and fitness to try and d- design a, <laughs> a strength and conditioning program. Right. Um, you know, so for the first time in my life, I had a support system, which was really hard it was really difficult for me to fit in because I was just so used to doing my own gym program, my own physio. And all of a sudden I was like, wow, I need like, this is all taken care of, which was a really difficult transition for, for well, me. In yeah. terms of just, again, losing that independence of, I've got agency because I'm, um, if it's going to get done, I'm going to do it. And, and so you've got control over that as opposed to now what a lot of, nearly every top athlete has got a support team behind them providing an awful lot of it and making it probably a lot easier. So you don't have to contend with as much demand. Yeah. You found that transition hard. Yeah, really difficult. And I think young athletes now don't know that, you know, they don't, they don't see that because they come through the talent programs. Everything's there for them. Everything's done for them. You know, it's almost like joining the military now. You're, you know, you're taught to shave, you're taught, taught everything. And yeah, I mean, I, I was getting my, like I said, I was getting my S&C programs from muscle and fitness. And, um, so to go into that program, it was, it was really challenging. And it, and I was like, wow, I'll just do my own weights program. I've got strong and I get strong. And all of a sudden there's this S&C coach saying, we well, need to do this, this and this. And you're, you're not allowed to speak between sets and you've got this amount of recovery. And I was like, wow, what's going on here? Um, so I, I struggled to start with and then, then I bought into it. And then when I bought into it, I was like, okay, this is this is amazing. And what's really interesting is that if I hadn't gone that day 
to that Loughborough University testing session with Nick and then on to do the Rowan stuff, I would I would have died. Um, because it was a combination of British Rowan and myself, but more British Rowan, that diagnosed the tumour. And if I hadn't gone there, there's a chance it would have just grown so big that it would have cut off my air supply and I would have I would have stopped breathing. So it was a big decision. That without any hindsight, it was a big decision to make to 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 basically go to Loughborough that day. And by going to Loughborough that day, it obviously facilitated me to go on and win a, a medal in London. But actually, it actually saved my life. So it's it's more than the medals and the world titles. It it was actually I'm alive today because of that. Okay, so I mean Nick Diaper's responsible for a large proportion of Paralympic talent, but ultimately you can see the connection with being in in a, a program that has all of these services and support systems that that could that could pick up a bit of feedback from you to say I'm I'm getting this symptom. And then somebody says, that, let's explore that further. And that you can connect with an earlier diagnosis of your, of your tumour and therefore saving your life. Yeah, which, which is, and that's, that's changed my whole approach to life now. I've went on to study neurobiology, neuroscience courses, psychology, uh, a whole host of stuff, probably because of those experiences in, in British showing early on, because I started to see the worth of having all of this information and knowledge at hand, the, the, the lactics, the, the power mirrors, literally everything. And I was thinking, wow, all these things accumulated to my finding my tumour. I wasn't, at that point, I wasn't self-aware enough. And I think because I was so fit, it was masking a lot of the symptoms of the tumour and it had done for so many years and it was a combination of not performing great high lactics at certain splits and watches on the erg that didn't make sense uh, my zone's been all over the place and it, it spiked questions right away from the performance team why, why is this athlete this data is not right we need to investigate this so then it was it was Sarah Gilchrist, uh, Dr. Sarah now I think she is, uh, who said, well, we're going to put a sleep monitor on. So she put the sleep monitor on. That data came back showing that I wasn't getting any sleep. Lots of infractions and all over the day, it was all over the place. So it was like, why, what are you doing through the night? So right away, there's an alarm bell of sleep. So then all of a sudden I've learned all this information about sleep hygiene and, and how important this is. And then at the same time, Pat, who was the physio, was physically working on me. And every time he physically worked on me, I was getting a neurological reaction. So all these little things were starting to build up. At the same time, I was also going and seeing my private doctors, thinking, you know, well, well, I'm having these symptoms. I mean, I'm going to the toilet 30 times through the day. This is not right. So all these little things were starting to play. So it was a mixture of the performance sports arena with all of the support, the physiologists, the physios, the, the even the S&C coach. Everyone was starting to have these discussions. And ultimately, we were all about to arrive at the same destination. But before sending me for a scan, I'll never forget Richard Budget for this, because I said to him I was doing the toilet 30 times a day, automatically you think, okay, there's a prostate problem, a bladder problem. 
because no one expects to diagnose people with tumours. It's not, you know, a doctor can go his whole life and not diagnose, diagnose a brain tumour. So you don't, when you go and sit with your sports performance team, they're not thinking, oh, this guy might have a spinal tumour. <laughs> it's the last thing on anyone's mind. So he sent me up to London to go and have uh, bladder tests. And this is this is something that might come to us all at one point. Unfortunately, it came to me in my in my early thirties, and I remember going up to London to I think it was the Wellington Hospital. I got into the hospital gown, sat down in a, in a, a corridor with the average age that was probably about seventy or eighty, and I was the only young dude in there. And then I went through the most horrendous experience I think I've ever experienced in my life, which involved two catheters and filling me up with dye. And the first catheter they couldn't get in. And it was the most excruciating pain ever. And then I had another follow-up test the next day and all of them came back clear. So I was like, thank you very much, Richard, for that. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine where that catheter's going. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that, that was very pleasurable. Nice, uh, to, nice to rule that one out. Yeah, like, so thanks, that, Budge. Yeah, so that, that's a tick in the box. That, that, did, that wasn't the problem. And then it was a few weeks later after that that Pat did a very light uh, manipulation on my on my back and that sent a whole cascade of neurological uh, I guess neurological issues and then he was like yeah we need to scan you and I think what they were initially expecting was to find a bulging disc in, in the spine I think it's a pretty common issue in Rowan uh, from the position that we sit in all the time and then that came back as a tumour and that was, the, that was in 2010 and that was the first you know, so it was a, almost a year in the Rowan program uh, where everything was going great and then to eventually to diagnosis. And um, that was the real, I guess, the real point of my life where, where life really changed. It was two years out from the games and I'm sitting in, in a hospital being told that I have a huge tumour in my spinal cord and that I might be lucky to not just compete in the games, I might be lucky to even be alive come the games. So that was a huge, um, a huge change. And I remember as soon as the first time I got diagnosed was in Windsor. And I remember the next day I was sat in Caversham on, on one of the bike, on a walk bike doing a session, uh, sat upright like you'll see the rowers always doing with the weights bar to take the pressure off their backs. And then one of the Olympic guys came up and he said, oh, have you hurt yourself? And I said, oh, I've got a tumour in my neck. And he could have drained the colour from his face. And he's like, what are you doing here, man? <laughs> and I was like, well, I had nowhere else to go. And I think that takes me back to the punch bag when I was 12 right. year old. It was my escape. It was an outlet. Then. It was an outlet. Um, and that's what sport has always been. So it almost wasn't this relationship trying to win medals. It wasn't really, it was, it was my, it was like my coping mechanism. So you, you've experienced the, someone saying the C word to you for the first time. And your initial thought, is presumably about you and your life, but where you go to is physical effort. What do I need to do next? What bike session to, to support you? Yeah. And I think it's really interesting because I look back on that now a little bit older, a little bit more mature, mature, I guess war, war hardened almost and think, wow, you know, I should have asked more questions. I should have done more things, but I did what I knew. And that was just to go to somewhere that was safe, which for me was sport. I didn't really know who to tell. I'm, I'm an INFJ, so I'm a pretty introverted person. So I kind of just go in, inside myself and think, well, okay, actually, you know what? I'm just going to go and get on a bike and smash myself because I know that that's what I'll do. And then I'll go and have the surgery and 
I'll just smash myself after that and get myself better. And it was really weird because I think the whole time I was in, I didn't really think I ever seen the magnitude of it. I think the diagnosis was such, it was such a big diagnosis. I, I think it's actually taken 10 years to really sink in what I was told that day. Um, and it's taken six surgeries, paralysis and everything for it, for me to actually sit down and go, wow, this is actually real. It almost felt like it was, it almost felt like I was watching a movie on someone else and that it wasn't me that was going through this. Cause I think that, I think I had almost just emotionally detached from it and, and I almost maybe didn't want to admit it. Um, but what I realized was that as long as I had the, the sport to hold on to, it was like my dry land. That was my, my coping mechanism. And I woke up from that first surgery, I had a spinal stroke, I, I mean, I almost died. It was an horrendous experience. And then I spent a month in hospital and, and then left hospital. And I mean, basically went straight to Bisham Abbey for an intensive rehabilitation block with the aim of getting back into a boat. And I was back in a boat in Henley six months after that, that surgery. So I know, I know some of the story ahead where you've had to make some decisions about whether I go for surgery or whether I go for a sporting goal. And clearly this seems to me like a coping mechanism. You've dissociated it from it emotionally, and I can completely understand why that might be. But your outlet and your support system around sport, um, were you conscious of that decision at the time? Or was it a case of this is such a big hit now in terms of news I've got to deal with this as opposed to home games, Paralympic games, etc. So I think looking back on it now, it's really interesting because I didn't have any oncology support to start with. Um, so when I was first diagnosed in that 2010, my, my only dream was London at that point. It became, I wanted a medal at that point, where I say before I didn't want to win medals because I'd been in British Rowan. <laughs> And it was driven by Meadows. I, I had a taste then for what, you know, I, okay, I want to be part of this now. I want to, to, to win a medal. So I believed that as soon as I got through the surgery, I'd get back in a boat, I'd go to trials, get my seat back, go to a world championships and then get to London and be on the start line in London. And, and, and I believed that not in an arrogant way. I just, I just knew that I was like, that, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to come away with a gold medal and I don't care what it takes. And, my whole focus was like, it was really strange because I thought, well, I've had my tumour, that's my turn. I've had it, they've taken it out, it's gone, I'm not going to get another one. And they've removed it and it was successful and everything that the doctors told me was successful. And I just got back into sport. I didn't go to any psychology or anything. I, I remember going to Caverton to do my first ERG and it was a 16K ERG in the boathouse and I got on and it was horrendous. And my coach at the time said, you ain't going home until you finish that 16k. Now that might sound that might sound <laughs> that's, really horrendous. That's insensitive. That <laughs> yeah. is. But again, that session was what won my gold medal in London. Because if I quit that day and gone home, I would never have made London because going from that session to London was horrendous. It wasn't a straight path. As you'll know, no no journey to a, an Olympic or Paralympic podium is a straight journey. People only see it on TV and think, oh, well, it was a six-minute race or whatever, and that's it. But they don't see the ups and the downs and the, the hard days that, that actually get there. And there was plenty of them. There was days that I couldn't move. My legs wouldn't work. And I was crying on the physio couch ready to quit. 
there was a to get it was an horrendous rehabilitation path and i remember the whole way through saying that i could never do this again that i could never do this again and then when i crossed that line in london that was it and i was like i i can't i'm shutting the book on rowan i'm shutting the book on the tumor it was this was a okay thank you very much but this was way too much and i'd never had any psychological support and not from the sport because sports psychology and oncology psychology are two different things and you can't expect a sports psychologist to know how to deal with oncology it's a different field of course yeah. and at that point i wasn't aware of that so i was like well, i don't really need sports i mean we worked with sports psychologists in the lead up to the games and it was very important and it really really paid off but i still hadn't had this oncology so i still hadn't accepted and dealt with the demons so when i was uh, re-diagnosed and i chose to go to sport rather than having the surgery uh, the media kind of blew it out of proportion slightly and made it sound like this heroic like i'm risking my life but it was a it was calculated look, i'm under the care of a neurosurgeon if he said to me look you need it today i would have the surgery today but the conversation went along the lines of well you've got plenty of room in your spinal cord and with spinal cord tumors that there's a lot of watch and wait just just watch it scan it see what it does see how it reacts they're very slow growing tumors it might not grow for 10 years 20 years it might just grow a couple of centimeters and then stop so he's like look we, we can just watch it go and do your training so it was it it wasn't quite how it was perceived in the headlines um of you know might die smith might die on bike um so for me it was it was just a while well, it's an obvious decision i was going to do what i know best and what i only know is to go to sport it, it made me not focus on the tumor i could just focus on being an athlete and at that point if someone asked me who Dave Smith was, I'd say, well, he's an athlete. I didn't really know who I was. I didn't know my identity and my values and what I was, who I was as a person. I just identified with who I was, was, was an athlete. Um, and I realized that's also not a very healthy relationship to have because uh, you, your goals and your values need to be very aligned. And mine probably weren't because I didn't even know what my values were at that point. Um, I just purely associated with being an athlete. So, those decisions again was like back to that 12 year old kid punching the punch bag the the erg the phonometer feeling it was like okay if i if i can suffer and feel the pain of sport then i know i'm alive and i'm not having to deal with the tumor stuff and that was a risk that's a recipe for a disaster because you're not really sitting down and and actually accepting and you don't have a support network even though i had a world-class sport network I didn't have an oncology network. I only had a neurosurgeon who was doing surgeries on me, but no one was actually sitting down and saying, Hey Dave, how are you? You know, how are you? How, what's it like to be diagnosed? What's it like to have your neck cut open, you know, two, three times and watch people die. And, you know, when you're in a neurological ward, you know, there's, there's guys in there now. I mean, I seen guys getting told they only had matters months to live and, you know, they, they shut the curtain, they pull the curtain open and they've just told the guys you're going to die. And you look around at you and you're like, Hey, mate, how are you getting on today? And, you know, I, so I've seen all this and no one had actually ever said to me, Hey, are you, how are you, how are you dealing with that? It was more about like, okay, we need to hit these targets and do this. So that's all great. And acute stress, as you know, is amazing for the body, but chronic stress is not so good. And, this had just been building up and building up and building up and and eventually that would take its toll years down the line how did you cope with it and 
I'm, I'm asking you that question as much because of our where we started about sharing your story. And if one in two of us, the human race, are going to get cancer, how do they cope with it? Well, and this is the thing. That, so there, what I've learned on this journey is that language is really important and there is no right and no wrong. So I've always perceived it from a fighter's perspective. So I, this is what works for me. I've always seen it. I've taken myself back to the dojo and saying, okay, how do I, how do I go into the fight? And if, if I go in an emotional wreck to the fight, scared of the fight, I'm going to get hurt. If I go in and attack 80%, I'm going to get hurt. So for me, I always dealt with it as the way a fighter would deal with going into the octagon or into the boxing ring or onto the karate, uh, takami. So for me, I always just see, I, I seen it as a challenge. I was like, you know what? It's you, it's me. We're in a ring. And if I turn up with all the toolkit, all the strategies, then I'm going to, I'm going to beat you. Now, other people, if you say that to them, they'll be massively offended and they'll be, it's not a fight. You can't beat it. What I've learned is that it's what works for every individual. And I think that ties in very much possibly with your personality type. So I, if I'm an INFJ, I'm, I get my energy from being on my own. So when I'm diagnosed, I go inside myself. I go and sit on my, every diagnosis I've had, the first thing I've done is go home, sit and cry on my own for hours, not phoned anyone, not told anybody. Then I'd be like, right, who do I need to tell? So then I would slowly tell different people. Then I'd maybe write a blog on it and tell everyone, but then I didn't want to deal with anyone. I just put it out there and that was my help. So I didn't really use any sort of, I guess, uh, CBT or any psychology stuff. I just went home because I didn't have anyone to go to and no one ever told me about Macmillan or Maggie or any of these organizations that my neurosurgeon just didn't, didn't do that. And I didn't know that that stuff was available. Why, why would I know it? Um, they don't teach you in school. If you get diagnosed, this is who you call. So I was, I was really struggling. Um, and again, I would just go to sport, go throw myself into sport. What's my targets? And the problem is that is then everyone thinks you're superhuman. <laughs> everyone thinks, wow, this guy's really, this guy's a machine. How do you do this? And the fact was, okay, I was doing it. But I wasn't, I wasn't, I was only just surviving. I wasn't thriving. And eventually that would catch up. You can only go so long before stuff like that eventually takes its toll. And it eventually did. So your, your advice to people is about finding a way. It's not necessarily, you need to think about cancer as some sort of opponent in the ring and beat it up that type of you know if you can believe it you can achieve it type of thing uh so you're you've got a mechanism that you found has has been helpful to you but equally you're saying that it catches up with you eventually what what, yeah. what catches up with you i think for me so it worked for that worked for me and i think other people don't want to talk about it. other people want to talk about it the one thing is 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 having that network of people around you that you know you can go to. So if you've got a bunch of feelers in your network, you know you can go to them for empathy, where if you've got the thinkers, it's probably best not going to a thinker for empathy because you're not going to get much. So it's how, it's knowing who's around you that you can go and have a cry to, or if you need a little bit of a kick and a push, you know where that is. The problem is with the way I did it, it worked for me. It's kept me alive. It's kept me on national teams. It's kept me 
thriving. But the problem is with that, and this is like any athlete in any sport or anything, you get tired eventually. You just get to a point where the body's like, I'm tired now. I'm tired of fighting. It's like a salmon swimming up the river. Eventually it gets tired. And if you're not looking after yourself, if you're not investing in your your nutrition, your sleep, your mental health and well-being, and you're so focused on something, then then there's a price to pay for that. And I think you can see that with, you know, there's unfortunately a lot of athletes in the last several years, you know, they've, they've taken their lives um, and you kind of think, wow, wh- wh- why? Well, you know, not, why why have you got to in, into that mindset? What's drove you into that position that you've taken that decision? And I think for me, it's only been in the last few weeks. It's quite poignant. We, we, we're sitting here today because it is only in the last few weeks that I've actually thought, wow, this is this has actually got too much for me now. And, and, I, and I'm at breaking point. But the great thing is, is because I've worked a lot on my self-awareness and self-regulation over the years, I, I spotted it before it became an issue. So, and then I knew I needed to change because what I found is I was stuck in this habit loop of diagnosis, surgery, rehabilitation, sport, diagnosis, and it, and it went on like so for the last nine years. And I thought, wow, okay, I, I need to change something. And I'm, a lot of people would say, oh, you, it's be, you know, your tumor's growing because you're stuck in this emotional area. But ultimately, I knew that I, I needed change in my life. And I'm just so thankful that I had, I've had a lot of good mentors around me over the years who are much wiser than me, who have made me see that. And I thought, okay, I need to step back from here and just look at the bigger picture and think, okay, who am I winning a medal for? Is it for me or is it for UK sport or is it for, you know, who, who's this medal actually for and do I want to do it or I, am I thinking I have to do it? And what, and what have you realised? So I realised that I didn't want to do it and I felt like, well, I have to win this medal because I'm told you have to win these medals. You have to win this medal to be on the national team. You have to do this. You have to do that. And I started to think, well, wait a minute here. This is actually not very good for my, I'm trying to stay alive and fight this oncology and this tumor and the paralysis and everything. I want to win a medal. And there's a big difference there about half in the want to goals. And I, and I realized that this whole half to mentality didn't sit with my values and it was actually starting to make me very mentally ill. And I thought, okay, I need to, I need to step away from all of this and just, and, and, and actually want to do it. And I think that's, all those years that have to actually got me through all the surgeries. It, you know, when you wake up, when you wake up in ICU and you've got tubes coming out your left, right, and centre, you've lost twenty kilos of muscle. You can't walk. You can't move. The people around you are all fighting for their lives. There's a point where you're lying there and you've not opened your eyes for two days, and you're like, "Okay, I, I just want to die now. I'm, I'm quite happy to die. The pain is so bad." that have to gets you out of that situation as well you know and, and and you want to do it as well but that it it kept me surviving and it kept me going but it had a shelf life and ultimately i and it and it got to it now where i'm thinking why wow, okay this is an unhealthy relationship so i need to to change this and i think i can be as successful if actually not more successful changing the language in my mind to that I want to do this I want to stay alive and I want to compete in sport rather than this having to be and I think what I've got that now simply because I had the support psychologically from oncology 
and I've built that network around me that actually I have rather than doing it on my own the whole time I actually have now accepted the help of of psychologists and and people around me to say okay you know what it's okay not to be okay is the tagline now and I think it's and I actually and I've I think the true definition of strength is actually admitting your vulnerability and and I and I've done that and I've got to a great place and a lot of that was with with my work with Steve Peters and 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 helping me see that and I think that's ultimately going to make me a better athlete a better human being but also much more able to deal with the the tumor uh, going forward goodness so <laughs> so here we're talking about the 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 kind of very pit of the experience that that nadir again about whether i choose life or not and what what i'm hearing there is that again the people around you but also that you you're now perhaps more aligned to a purpose rather than the the pursuit i ha, uh, i've got to do this if i don't do this now i don't end up doing that arbitrary event and getting the little disc of metal at the end of it i've now doing this for a different reason that, that seems more aligned to why you're here on this planet am i hearing that correctly yeah i think so i think um you know steve said something to me you know the very first day he met me he's like who's dave smith and i said i'm an athlete and he went no you're not go and find out who you are. And then he spoke to me a lot about wanting to do stuff for David. And he's like, you know what? So he says, this whole stuff about the Olympics and everything, in a hundred years from now, no one will care because we'll all be dead. <laughs> and it's true. So we hold on to this thing that and we, and we, you know, you think, well, if I get this, if I get this medal, my life's going to be different. I'm going to be happy. Or if I buy this car, I'm going to be happy. And, uh, Yale did a great study on positive psychology and they asked a, a bunch of first year grads, you know, what will make you happy? And all the grads were like, good grades, good job, you know, lots of money. And actually they were like, well, actually, no, you're wrong. You know, acts of kindness make you happy. Bringing gratitude into your life makes you happy. Experiences make you happy. And when you start to think about that, you think, okay, so going to the Olympics is an amazing experience. Winning a medal is an amazing experience, but somehow we've, lost this and it's become a relief to win sometimes and it's and you hear a lot of people you know they 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 start to hate their sport and then they leave the national team and then fall in love with the sport again and you think wow okay how does that even happen and i understand pressure and i understand that a lot of pressure comes externally internally but for me i just thought i want to enjoy this because I've seen the end of life. I've almost tied several times. I've watched people I was in radiation with are now dead. And when you talk about death, people freak out. People don't want to talk about death. People are like, oh my God, don't speak about death. And I actually, you know, there's one sure thing in life. We're all going to die. We've all got an expiration date on our forehead. Yeah. And people freak out about that. But that's a sure thing. We're all going to die. And I try to say to people, if you knew the day you were going to die, would that make you look, live today differently and the answer is absolutely yes so if you think if say we're you know say you're 40 and the average age you die maybe 70 or 80 or whatever you think well i only have like 25 30 summers left what am i going to do with those summers god reframing it just in terms of the summer yeah do you do that specifically because everyone enjoys the summer (laughs) yeah i do because everyone enjoys the summer we can say okay you've only got you know 20 odd january's left because january's not a great a great month for people but when you start to look at it that way you start to think okay what's really important to me 
You know, who am I spending these summers with? What am I spending my time doing? Am I wasting my time sitting on Instagram looking at other people's lives? Or am I living my life? And, you know, the... I think tech's a great thing. It's, it's changed the medical world. It's changed the world for good, but it also has brought a lot of bad into the world. And this relationship with death, when you start to, you know, when I, when I lay in hospital, um, all I had was memories. That was it. That are made from experiences. I didn't have my medal in hospital. I didn't lie there. And also everyone around me didn't care. You know, you're not Bradley Wiggins, you know, Olympic medals or whatever. You're just, Bradley Wiggins in Ward 1, Bed 2. Uh, he's pooed himself. Can someone go and clean him up? <laughs> That's where we all end up. And like the old blacks say, you know, like you, you never keep that shirt. You only get it, you borrow it, and you give it back, and you should try and give it back in a better place. So, you know, I, I'm a great believer in, in being humble in victory and gracious in defeat and actually living by those values and just generally trying to be a good human being. And... I, when I realized about this, when I seen death and, and actually seen these people dying and, and you're taking their last breaths and stuff, I was like, wow, this is, this has really moved me. And it's fine. Okay. What is my purpose? And I realized that I don't want to do something I don't love. And I'm not saying to people, okay, go and quit your job tomorrow because <laughs> there's obviously the Maslow's needs of putting a house, over, you know, roof over your head and food and et cetera. But trying to find that passion and that purpose. And I think that's something, that journey I've gone on now of the sport has given me everything. I love sport. I love being an athlete and I would love to win. But ultimately I, I want to live and I want to enjoy my life because we, we don't own tomorrow and we can't get yesterday back. We only have this present moment. And I think human beings are, we're great forecasters. Everywhere I go to do a talk and everyone's always forecasting. We need to hit these targets. We need to hit this. We need, we need this word need all the time. We need to do this. We need to do that. And I'm thinking, well, you know, why do we need to do it? <laughs> you know, surely if we have a workforce of people who are happy and thriving in life, give a hundred percent and then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll achieve. And Usain Bolt says that, great. You know, someone asked Usain Bolt, you know, did you get worried and stressed about your races? He's like, nah, man, you know, I train really hard. I turn up and what will be will be. And if you can honestly look at yourself in the mirror, the only person you can lie to is yourself. So if you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what, I've done every single thing possible to get the performance I want, whether it's in business, sport, in your relationship, or whatever it is, then you, you know, if you get beat on the day, then you've got to celebrate your fourth. And I know that's a hard, that's hard for people to understand. But when it's all said and done and you come to the, that, that end day, wherever your last breaths are, you want to look back and you don't want to look back with regret and go, oh God, you know what? I hated every moment of that. <laughs> you want to look back and say, you know what? I had a, I had a great time um, in life and I seized every moment I had and I squeezed every last little bit out of it. And for me, that's that's really important. I think that's where I am now with, I realize with this tumor is never going to go away. It's stable at the moment. It's there. And I thought, you know, I've got to do things that I love and things that, that really nourish me and, and thrive. And for me personally, that's maybe not about winning anymore and being in a sports network. It's, it's about going out and maybe trying to help people realize their passion, realize their purpose and actually just realize how, how finite time time is. I'm here. I'm almost thinking of the boiling frog. The, have you heard of the? I think it's a metaphor 
there was rumors of it being an experiment where they would put a, a frog into boiling water and it would leap straight out mm-hmm. because it was just too much. Mm. And there was an extreme, but they put the frog into cold water and then heated it up slowly. And the frog didn't leap out because it just got used to the ever increasing normality of that heat. But here, what you're, you're sharing as an insight when you're faced with death, when you're going into surgery, not knowing whether you're going to wake up or not, or that you're seeing it around you, that, that that spirit is conjuring up for you. I'm choosing, I'm choosing a better way of living my life every day. The, the, the stark reality of, of people happier in radiation versus up around the streets, that, that's not right, is it? No, it's, it's, it's really not. And, and it's, it's so interesting because I look at all my surgeries and everything and, and you, it's like relationships. You learn from every one. And I've learned from every surgery, but I don't think I really truly learned until this one. And this was me going into my fourth diagnosis, fifth and sixth surgery. And I remember I was, sit, I was sitting with Chris Hoy before the surgery and I said, and he's like, how, how do you feel? And I was like, oh man, I'm struggling like properly struggling this time. I'm scared. I'm, I'm really, really scared. I'm going to die. Um, I, I don't want to die. And he was like, oh my God. <laughs> he was like, have you spoke to Steve Pierce? And I was like, ah, oh, no. So he, he, Steve phoned me that night and we had a, a really just a good discussion and it, and it set me up uh, for what was about to come. But I remember walking into hospital the night of the surgery and I, I went to check in and the girl said to me, she's like, I said, you know, Dave Smith, I'm here to check in. She's like, you don't look like one of our patients because I'd just come straight from cycling across, you know, 740 kilometers across the Alps. <laughs> I'd come from a world championships and I looked around at the ward behind me and I was like, wow. I was like, I will do in two days time because I knew what was to come because I'd been through it. And I was like, wow, this is, and, and it's really hard because every you know, we constantly go around trying to survive. You know, that, that limbic system has never really evolved over over millions of years. So my amygdala was going, get out of here. Like we need, let, let's, let's just get out of here. But then my rational brain was like, well, if we leave from here, we're going to die. I, I remember speaking to a, a surgeon in the Mayo Clinic probably about a week before going in for that surgery. And, and he was looking at my scans and he said, can you send me a picture of you standing? Because you, you shouldn't be able to stand. And I sent him a photo from the Alps on my bike. And he's like, that's in, that's insane. That's impossible. He said, every patient I have here with a tumor this size can't walk. And, and what's going on there is that the fact that your sport not only is driving you in pursuit, uh, but it's also developing you physically, cardiovascular, muscle, mindset yeah I, I, and i believe that 100 i think being fit healthy being the athlete is is managing to deal with it's, it's kept me resilient in that stuff it's having the capacity to deal with the with the the adversity of the tumor so uh, of course i could walk why wouldn't i walk and it's having i think it's having the mindset of an athlete but it's also having the physiological capacity uh, as you say the the cardiovascular system the, the neurological system to to deal with it so it was like a, it was like a game of tug and war almost between my myself and the tumor and um at that point it's really hard to let go again because i knew what was coming and i was like oh my god here we go again for like the fourth fifth time i know i'm going to be in a wheelchair i know i'm going to wake up and i was like oh this is getting really tiring and then the next morning i remember walking down to the anesthetic room and this is like no other walk this is like yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure even Anthea Joshua feels this when he walks into to go into the ring, 
you're walking down. There's a there's a um, a guy who walks you down there. You know, he's making small talk with you, and you get to the door of the anaesthetic room, and then it says no family beyond, no one beyond this point, basically bar the patient. So you turn around and look at your family, and like, what do you say in this instance? You might never see them again. You you might literally be going in to die, and you kind of just give them all a hug, and you're like, I'll see you on the other side. Because at that point, you're having to support their emotions and your emotions. So emotional intelligence becomes a huge part of navigating disease, cancer, you know, illness, death. And being emotionally intelligent at that point really helps because you're trying to manage their emotions. And you're trying to, because if you're hold, if you don't hold it together, they ain't holding it together. So you've got to hold it together for them. And going into surgery, I, I'm a big believer that when you're put under anaesthetic, your unconscious and subconscious mind is still functioning. So the seeds that you plant in there before going through that door have a chance to flourish whilst you're under anaesthetic. So it's back to the perception. So you go into it like you would an Olympic final. Um, so you walk through that door, get onto the anaesthetic table and it was freezing cold. And I remember the girl giving me a, a warm blanket because I was shivering. And she put the warm blanket on and then they start to put all the little cables and the lines in and stuff. And then they tell you, you know, once you're out, we'll put all the lines in you and stuff and et cetera. And the, the door opened to the theater and I seen through to the theater where I was going. And I was like, I could just I felt my heart rate go boom. I was like, okay, control your breathing, stay in the moment, stay relaxed. And I prepared exactly the same way as I do to go and ride a pursuit on the track it's the same it's the same feeling exactly the same feeling stress is a stress the body can't distinguish it's just about trying to keep control of that stress so i went through everything that i'd learned from steve and everyone all my years in sport and the funny the other surgeries i hadn't really done that but this time i for the fifth fourth fifth surgery i really knew the magnitude of this time i really knew that i could potentially die doing this it really sank in and then you close your eyes and before you close your eyes you have one look around the room and you think man that could be the last thing you ever ever see and so you've got all these thoughts and these voices going on in your head and you're kind of like wow okay this this puts right in a pursuit into perspective <laughs> this is like okay medals and records and all that come and go athletes come and go but really the only person that really cares about this next five hours more is, is you you're the only person that really cares you know everyone cares but you really care about your life you don't want to die so um you know everyone else will mourn and 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 sadden that you die but they'll move on but you can't move on because you're you're dead so you have to go into a real fight for your life mode and then of course you wake up five six hours later and you have all these tubes and pipes hanging out of you and you think wow okay when I get out of here, I'm going to make the most of life. And and that's a big learning, big lesson to learn. And it's a lesson that you have to constantly remind yourself because we then constantly get caught up in performance and targets and goals and we get back on the treadmill of life. And I constantly have to step away from that and say, wait a minute, okay, like, am I living my best life? God, I mean, so so I, I'm listening to you, Dave, and and it's been, uh, I mean, it's hugely humbling, but I'm listening to you share the experiences of of the 
clubfoot or the um or not being able to sleep or the tumor or diagnosis and i'm imagining myself i've i've got a i'm wondering how i would cope and we're having this conversation and i'm getting a buy with it and then as soon as you start mentioning turning around and talking to her <laughs> <clears throat> your family uh, that's yeah that that's that's the tough part um is that you it's it's really strange because i sometimes wonder if i have emotionally detached from it um because i because this is the life i live um and, and people often say to me i've had people say you know people that have won like lots of gold medals at the olympics and i go i could never get through what you get through. And I was like, but you don't know that because you've never been in that situation. I hope you never have to be in that situation. But the human body has an incredible resolve. And and someone actually asked me a question a few weeks ago when I was doing a talk, is that do, do I believe that that's nurture or nature? Was I born this way or is it something I've developed through life? And I think it's probably a combination of both. Um... I have certainly managed to emotionally detach. So when I turn around and hug my family, I, I, ha- I have to detach from it. I have you have to detach that emotion. If if not, then, and it's hard for me because I'm a feeler. So I, I, INFJ, I'm a big feeler. I'm eighty. I think I was eighty five percent feeling. So that's that's really hard for me to to not burst into tears, to not cry. But I know that at that point I need to be strong because my family are not and I'm thinking okay I'm I'm you know it's it's like the the officer and the soldiers in military the officer even though he's fearful of where he's about to take his men he can't show fear he needs he's the leader he needs to be like okay you know I you guys need to follow me and that's how I feel in that situation I'm like okay I need to go in here and be strong for for those guys and and this is something I learned in my, I think it was my third surgery when the surgery that didn't go right, is that that I realized that if I start to lose it, everyone around me loses it. <laughs> so then I have to be strong. But then that also comes at a price to, to me because when I come home, I am then drained and then I sit and cry on my own. But I've learned that through, I've got coping strategies for that now where, okay, I'll put on that brave face in front of my family and put on the brave face in front of my friends and say, you know what, everything's okay, I'm strong. And then I'll come home and I'll sit down and be like, yeah, I'm struggling. I'm really, really struggling. Um, and this is the great thing now with being at UCLH in London with Professor Choi's team. I have an oncology team. So I remember sitting down with a psychologist, a young girl at British Cycling years ago before one of my surgeries. And um, I thought it'd be wise to go along to psychology. And, you know, she's like, well, what's your biggest fear? And the poor girl was straight out of university. And I was like, well, I'm, that I might die next week. <laughs> and, and I seen the reaction in her face. And I was like, oh, I was like, don't worry about that. Okay. And, and I realized, and she was like, whoa, she wasn't expecting that. So that's when I realized that everyone in our network has their own speciality. So I thought, okay, if I'm going to have that conversation, it needs to be with somebody who's who's equipped to deal with that. So when I when I eventually found oncology, I remember the day I found oncology, and I burst into tears. My mum came down from Scotland on a train, 
So she's in a mess emotionally. We both go into the Macmillan Cancer Centre in in London, which is a a, a crazy emotional place to be. Um, And we sit in front of this team of oncologists and I have two hours of his time and I just burst into tears because I said to him, for the first time in nine years, I feel like I'm on dry land. I feel like I've been drowning and just keeping my head above and keeping my head above. And all of a sudden I've found dry land and there's like the Macmillan Center. There's There was almost too much help. There was all these people around me saying, we can help you, we can help you. Here's booklets on this, here's booklets on that, giving you all the knowledge and all the information that you, you can possibly hope for. So when you're in the worst situation, and there's, it is a, it's a crap situation to be in, there's no denying it, and it will be a huge remoter, roller coaster for people of emotions. But when you have that support network around you, then it just it just made it made it easier for me. And I just cried in the guy's office, and I, and I and I was I was a mess. And all of a sudden, I had this psychology. Uh, support from oncology after radiation they ran an eight-week mindfulness course that I went on which was a huge help uh, just to become more because the thing is that and again this is again the human being and human doing is that we become mindful rather than mindful so our minds are full of stuff all the time but all these voices oh I'm, I'm not good enough I'm not this or we need to do this rather than being mindful so I learned just to be mindful doing my teeth and all of a sudden doing my teeth was actually a big thing. It wasn't a chore. I became mindful of doing my teeth. I became mindful of walking along the street. I noticed smells and colors and seeing things. I, de- I tried to detach from my phone and be more just mindful of my surroundings. And that started to really change my life and how I live as a person. And just the experiences that, that I, the, the professor in Ye- that Yale spoke about, having these experiences and then I, I said to my parents, you know what? I said, if I die tomorrow, celebrate my life. I've had an amazing life. I've had an amazing journey. I'm very privileged to become self-aware, to actually understand what life is about, why we're here. Most people go through a whole life trying to think, what the hell are we doing here? Uh, what's our purpose? I've seen it. And I'm not scared. I don't want to die. I'm not scared of it. But I don't want it to happen. But I also realized that the paradox of the tumor is that the greatest things in my life have happened because I've had a tumor. Um, would I swap all? Absolutely in a heartbeat. I would give every medal, everything away to have my health. But would I swap the lessons that I've learned? Absolutely not. Because I believe everything I have learned is is beyond anything I think that someone could have taught me in a lesson uh, to actually go and live it um, and go through all of the the pain the the, the hurt the, the radiation to see to see the human being you know I've seen strong human beings crumble and roll up in a ball and cry and that's a very humbling thing so when I see all these huge egos in the world, it kind of just makes me laugh and smile and I'm thinking, you know, wow, it's like, you know, you to lose the ego is a big thing. And, and I, and I lost that ego years ago and I'm very thankful for that. So, so a, a life that's rich, that you've burned bright 
because we don't burn for very long, as you say. No, you know, yeah. in, in, the, in the vast scape of time, we're tiny little dots of light that, that light up for a period of time. And so to live that life to the fullest and to, and you've got this strange relationship with that tumor that it's enriched and it's given you le- lessons to feed. You, you said something a, a moment ago to say the lesson I learned from my third surgery <laughs> as, as, as almost it was like a, a sit down lecture you yeah. know, uh, yeah. <laughs> that I took something away from it, but that you've, you've maintained that growth mindset of studying it. It sounds like you've got a, a level of humor around understanding it too. Yeah. What, what is next? How, how do you look forward with this, this visor that you'll always see life through? Yeah, that, that's hard because I remember doing every fitness test at British Cycling and then saying, well, you hit this and you do this and you hit these watts and that. And I'd be sitting there having the conversation. I think, well, that's all great, but what if I get diagnosed again? And, and, and ultimately, I always did. So this time around, and it's a really hard conversation, you know, yesterday I set all these goals and targets of where I want to go. You know, I want to go to 2023 World Championships in Glasgow and cycle. I'd love to win a medal there. I want to, I want to finish my psychology degree. I want to do X, Y, and Z. And then I got a call from oncology. So I write all these plans down, all these goals that I want to achieve. And then oncology phone me and say, hey, Mr. Smith, I just want you to come back into oncology in two weeks time. So then you're like, like getting hit by a truck so then it's like well jesus like i i want to i'm a a go-getter in life you know i want to go out and smash things and give it 100 percent and and squeeze every part out of it then you get a phone call at that and it brings you right back to reality so i'm like wow okay man it's it's deflating because i set all these goals and all these targets you know and like got all these things in place and then I'm thinking wow you know I'm back in oncology what if they just tell me my tumor is growing again and then that just rules all that out so it's really really hard to to live with all these goals and and trying to push myself and and get the best out of life because in a year's time from now I could be back in surgery I might not even be alive in a year I might not even be alive come 2023 I believe I will I'm very big on the thoughts and feelings and the beliefs that we have create our, our personality and our reality around us. I'm, I'm very, I believe that that's very important. The things I tell myself in my inner voice is that, that I am going to be okay. I am healthy. I am strong and I will be here to enjoy life. But it also makes me very mindful when I set goals and targets that are kind of like now I'm almost, because I've had six surgeries now, I'm kind of like, oh man, sometimes I think, oh, what's the point in setting another goal because I'm just going to get ill again. And then I have to pull myself out of that mindset and say, no, it's very important that I set a goal because the goal gets me up in the morning out of bed and makes me go and attack my day. So I realized that what I need to do is set goals, but like anybody not obsess about them and realize that actually the road that takes you to the summit of the mountain is as beautiful if not more beautiful than standing on the summit and i think for what that means to me is that is to to live in the process set the goal attach detach yourself from the outcome the destination and actually enjoy the journey and like anything in life it's easy to see it but to actually execute it and live by it is another thing and that's the thing with inspiration it's easy to be inspired by people it's easy to give inspiration it's what you do with that inspiration that actually really matters. I give myself a little bit of a kick and say, well, hey, come on, let's focus on what you can do. And that's why I love riding my bike. Because when I'm on my bike, 
I don't feel disabled. I don't feel injured. I'm in flow. I'm, I feel free. And for those hours or minutes that I'm outside cycling across the Alps or whatever I'm doing on my bike, it's, it's, that's living. And that's what I love to do. And I think I encourage people to find out what relates, what's their living. If you can find out what your living is, then, then that's your passion, your purpose, and, and you can get, make the most of life. Well, Dave, um, God, words can't express just how humbled I am about having this conversation, experiencing this, valuing that experience as, as we've talked about and, and your story. But I'm mindful of you, you saying about the All Blacks mm. and giving the shirt back in, in a, a better condition. And I'm almost wondering whether the pursuit of you communicating your story, what you've been through, uh, I wonder whether it has the very potential to help people get their lives back, <laughs> it, to, to lift themselves out of the drudge and see that, that they can live uh, a, richer, a richer life as opposed to the, the rat race that we all fall into quite, quite quickly. Um, what a precious experience. Thank you for amazingly powerful. It's, it's always easy to say a powerful conversation, but it has been. And for me, quite an ex- existential, what, why am I here? And I'll be taking an enormous <laughs> amount out of it too. Dave, thank you so much. No, no, Steve, thank you. It's, it's been a great honor. And um, yeah, no, I'm, a, I'm a, a keen follower of your podcasts and the stuff that you've done. You've always been an inspiration to me. So it's an honor to sit down with you. No question that our listeners will want to find out more. So where can they find out more from you? Yeah, so I write a weekly blog in, on The Herald in Scotland. So most of them are online. Uh, so that's if you just go into The Herald newspaper in Scotland, you'll, you'll find all the blogs there. I have a, have a, a website, which is davidsmithathlete.com. Um, and there's there's stuff on there. And you know maybe in the future, I might put pen to paper and, and write a book. Um, I think it could potentially help a lot of people. So, um, yeah, but the, yeah, if you want to hear more, the, the Herald of Scotland column, it comes out every week. Um, so that, that's a good place to, to start. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Dave. Thanks, guys. Thank you. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram under supporting champions and subscribe through the website for the latest updates. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then it'd be great if you could leave a review on iTunes. 